My name is Bill Cashmore. I am a PhD researcher at the at Kingston University in London at the Centre for Research in Modern European Philosophy. I've been working in philosophy for a fair few years now, although a lot of those were undergraduate years. And I work primarily now on the philosophy of negation and trying to think through how so-called negative philosophies might be more operative in understanding and indeed to an extent escaping the capitalist actuality, let's say. And yes, I work a lot with Marxism, the Frankfurt School, and increasingly the black radical tradition. Awesome. Maybe it's too complicated to explain briefly, but what is negative philosophy? Oh, goodness me. I, I mean that in the kind of specifically Hegelian sense, although it begins with Kant with the idea of critical philosophy, right? Uh, which attempts to begin with uh, the thought that the only way to have anything substantive to say about an object of representation is to first think about the conditions under which that representation becomes possible. And so it's negative in the sense that you're first beginning to critique that representation. Um, the What I take to be the truly critical uh, maneuver is to articulate that whenever uh, a particular representation, let's say of a liberated future even, appears to us, we will need to think about how a set of historical and in the Marxist version, material conditions have produced the possibility and sometimes the necessity of that representation. So what that means is that you start to become a little bit more critical of any way of thinking which thinks that it's managed to escape the world already. But I would rather hope that that doesn't mean that you can't, you must not remain committed to the idea that articulating an escape would indeed be possible. The paragraph that is constantly ringing in my ears, I think I read it like every day for about six months at one point, is the finale to the, min to the Minimum Moralia by Adorno, in which he says that the only philosophy that can be responsibly practiced in face of despair is to comprehend things as they would be seen from the standpoint of redemption. But then says, so you cannot fail or we must attempt to imagine what it would be like to have escaped all this. But similarly, doing so would be genuinely impossible. And it's through thinking through that impossibility that all radical political action and indeed all radical thought uh, can and must occur. Uh, and that's, in some senses, the framing ethic of We Hear Only Ourselves, which is a book that I published recently, or sorry, might be published by the time this is out. I'm not sure. It's out on the 29th of September uh, with zero books. Yeah. And it's a f in, intriguing read. Sorry, Harriet, did you want to jump in? I did because I love your book. Oh, thank you. I think that whole treatment of utopia is so important because in America, at least, every high school student reads about dystopias as if every utopian hope, whether we're reading Lord of the Flies, 1984, Brave New World, Animal Farm, people who start out with hope end up being destroyed. People who want to transform the reproduction of social and domestic life end up tyrannizing one another instead of refusing domination. So you know that your idea of utopia and possibility is a product of the moment, but you know that they need transformation and they need hope, which is what capitalism really crushes. I think, I think it's right. I do think about the fact that there is a whole 
in, in um, the UK, it's the same. So in A-level English, there is a dystopias module and no utopias module, which might say there's something about the specific form of the dystopian novel, which is particularly adequate to the 20th century, you could argue. And that might be the reason. But I don't come across in conversations like this one, but down the pub, just the same. Uh, as a particularly hopeful person, I was listening to uh, your interview with Rashid and Rabti recently, and we had a number of points of agreement about the kind of affect that we feel quite frequently about, about utopia, which is primarily rather negative. For me, however, the only utopian thought is negative, and to an extent, the only truly negative thought is utopian. Insofar as utopia um, is not just this thing which we're imagining to be impossible, but actually the act of imagining it. The great thing about the concept of utopia is that it almost builds into the, its own idea, its own impossibility of imagining itself. Right, And for me, you can escape all of these, what I genuinely think of, are delusions or illusions of fantasy and of hope, which for me are to an extent afterlives of basically theological categories which are unhelpful to thinking through the material conditions which reproduce our capitalist actuality. And it is only through comprehending the impossible uh, or the attempt to comprehend the impossible that we might be able to think about resistance to whatever it is that we are thinking through. Capitalism in general is the, the one that I, I always return to. And so, to an extent, the work was, uh, is an attempt to have an idea of utopia without hope, because I'm not all that hopeful, but I do think that, not in the sense that I don't think there is anything to be done, quite the opposite. It's just that I think mm. that hope is basically for the hopeless. And while it might be a kind of useful way of dealing with the way that the world is, it could be a kind of way of thinking through things, right? Okay, we can hope for something better. That's why I'm going to do some action. I can understand it as a coping mechanism. But as a concept for the way to think through our resistance, I think it is wholly inadequate. And I, and, and I find that a lot of people do agree, but it's because everything sucks so much. We often <laughs> want to resist that the idea that there isn't any hope. And I come across a lot of folks who feel that way. I have a quote which I enjoyed following on from that point. We live in an increasingly determined, administrated world, so the imperative for our thought to remain at extremes to get as far away from this world as we can is stronger than ever. And that was like, okay, so utopian thinking maybe is like a release valve, but in a similar way, maybe the other opposite end of the spectrum, all the same conspiracy theories, right? That they're all an attempt at escaping a shitty presence. If the sort of real life right now sucks, I'm going to disappear into these kind of make-believe worlds. And my interpretation really, I mean, hashtag spoilers, but it's only my interpretation, is that maybe your take on utopia is that it's like forever a carrot on a stick. It can never really ever happen. And when something close to something described as utopia happens, it just moves. The goalposts move. And now it's, there's a different thing to chase. But at the same time, even having you on to talk on the podcast is funny because you play with this idea of comprehension at the beginning of the book. You, to some degree, you're say, saying, yeah, 
I don't really want you to understand my book. Obviously, we would just like to have a chat. So without getting you to explain yourself. No, okay. I should clarify, perhaps, for the sake of comprehension. I, it's not so much that I have this resistance to the idea that things should be understood. Quite the opposite. I think there is a genuine philosophical tradition that wants that. I think A Thousand Plateaus by Deleuze and Guattari is perhaps the prime example of, some, of a book that genuinely tries to resist its own comprehension. My point is the more minimal one, which is that you don't have to understand it. And the idea that you immediately understand it, now that I wouldn't like so much, but you can comprehend your incomprehension of something, right? That's the second reflection. I didn't really get that and I, I, I don't know why. And you might s start asking those questions. I remember I watched Vertigo for the first time and thought very much the similar thing. But I watched it and the biggest thing that I could think about it was that I have no idea what I'd just seen, but it's fantastic. Right? And so th that negative moment, which is I sort of surreptitiously tried to sneak into a apparently inane discussion of the practice of reading philosophy, is always accompanied by the appearance of something positive. And so insofar as utopia is a kind of carrot on the stick, there's, an, there's a sense there, but it's more of an illusion of a carrot, right? Because you, can, you could see your reward, right? But properly utopian thought, I would hope, would remain critical of the ways that we think about our own rewards. If you ask someone to imagine a society where all the problems have been solved, where they've got everything that they want, occasionally that can remain uncritical of what we want, right? <laughs> and if we're going to learn anything from the connection between psychiatry and psychoanalysis and, and, and critical thought, liberatory political philosophy, it would be that we shouldn't necessarily get what we're wanting. Is that, that, but uh, our wants will change depending on what we're precisely as well. what we can see our wants change because but one of the things that's very powerful about utopia is people can imagine something they want and maybe work for it. And what England and the United States suffers is a way of living differently outside of this and a program that we can believe in knowing will change it. But we can believe in it now, and it sure looks a lot better than what's going down. And there isn't a unifying political force in either country which mobilizes people's possibilities. And that's really bad for us. And my morality, that means we're sunk until that happens. Now, in the US, at least, I don't know the situation in the UK, there is a sort of rehearsal of something in the hundreds of thousands of people who are on strike, the recognition of a class system of employer class and employee class, and that people at the bottom have to unite to have a chance is hopeful knowing that who knows what's going to happen when the union is settled or if those people can take that further and build something, including a mass movement. I don't know. But there are these, I would call them hopeful developments. I, I bend the book with this reference to another one of these short pieces that for a, a certain point I was reading virtually every day, which was from a writer that I, I read less these days, but I used to read a huge amount, which was Mark Fisher. Yeah. This specific, for now, our desire is nameless. And I remember finding that quite moving at the time. It has that kind of feel, almost theological element to it, which a lot of inspiring writing often does. And, and to which 
in that, Fisher says that we need to wait for this thing that we're going to know is the movement, right? Communism is, the, the that, that name is gone, right? There's got to be a new name, but for now it's nameless. Right? Uh, yeah. And I, in some senses, this book was kind of a response to that feeling because I began to think, hang on, why did I find that such a compelling idea? It's that, no, no, our desire really is nameless. It isn't anything. That's what utopia is. It is the nowhere. It is nothing. It is negation itself. Uh, and that's the kind of ends up being the attempt at a political articulation here is that the attempt to identify within the actual, the prospect of the non-actual, will always has this danger of lapsing over into ideology, of taking an image of what we want that comes from what we're trying to escape. And that's the challenge. That's the challenge of philosophy. And to an extent, thus the challenge of all thought is how do you know what you want when all you've been given is this? You know, how yeah. is it possible to imagine a right. society without work in one where all you do is work? And that problematic, I don't think there's, I hardly think there's anything more important. And my thought is, well, you can't. And what can you take from that lesson? What can you take from the fact that there is nothing? That's, the, that's what I try to get out with this idea of utopia. What, you know, what strikes me maybe because I'm a therapist and I work with a lot of couples, that the idea of marriage, it's not, we'll never be lonely anymore, that's crazy, but I will struggle with you till I can't stand it anymore. That is a utopian marriage possibility, I think, that is more ground in the reality of not knowing and of continued struggle to have something that's important. So I think they, if you introduce struggle in here rather than finality, you've got something. Interesting. Pekoi, sorry, did you want to jump in? One of the things that, that kind of struck me about reading this book is just we are such an extremely, in, in many ways, especially in business and metrics to a point of outcome oriented to the minutia like that is the reality of our world right is having this such fixed focus on a very specific outcome all the time and that kind of being the driver of our reality is that we are kind of always forced to work towards an outcome and a specific one often one that we don't have any say in either and that being the reality, like this book was, I think my feeling of reading through it was wanting some, because the difference between being process oriented and outcome oriented is that in the process orientation, things constantly shift and change as you gain more. Or and the more you have realization, you think about something and it's, oh, okay, yeah, no, this thing that I wanted, actually, I don't want anymore. Or it changes a little bit. And it's like this entire process of change that happens all the time if you really pay attention to it. And because that's what it means by, I think, nothingness in a sense of just you can't name a specific outcome and that it, it changes over the process. Am I completely off base? No, I don't think so at all. But I am going to offer a, a, a slight a slight rejoinder. And all that is to say that I don't think that you can... Part of the at least the first chapter of the book 
is that you can't quite get out of thinking in terms of outcome. Because even if you're thinking about a, pro a process, there must be some end, I think, towards your evaluation of what those processes are producing. For example, if I'm just thinking about, now, sure, you could avoid not having a complete picture of the outcome that you require, but surely we cannot escape thinking about which process do I want, right? And yep, right. to articulate what you want is always to at least slightly imagine what it is that you want. And mm -hmm. so the danger is, it, it's even worse, right? I mean, basically each chapter of these is, and then it's worse than that, and so <laughs> on and so forth. Uh, and that's, for what it's worth, why I think we need this idea of narrative, because I think part of it is that we're trying to think a little bit too speculatively about, about a utopia quite often. And this leads us to certain contradictions, which I don't think you can quite escape, but you can have a, a some kind of response to, uh, not a resolution as such, but a kind of an open-ended chord at the end of a piece, which you know, right. which to an extent ends it, but certainly wouldn't resolve it. Right? There's no five-one, and the so well when I say nothingness, or when I say negation, it would be the constant oscillation between poles of a contradiction not the acceptance of one of those over the other that I, that you may identify as negative. Because of course, our identification of objects as negative is a positive statement. Right, and, right. and so... No, yeah, yeah, no, that's a really important point because it's also just one of the things that our society has a really difficult time is dealing with ambivalence. Mm. Yeah. And, yeah. right? and com both contradictions and ambivalence. And I think it's even worse at dealing with ambivalence because, again, like we, we tend to be much more of a black and white society. And, and those were just, again, like some of the thoughts floating around in my head as I was reading the book, because a part of like ambivalence is that state where you're not sure what is good or what is bad, right? That it, it's like that interim area. And that's one of the areas that is often some of the focus in, in, in Buddhism is around what we do with ambivalence, because that is considered just like a natural state of thing, right? And I think we live in a very unnatural world where that's not allowed. Yeah. Yeah, you have right? this quote in the book talking about living in the wrong world. <laughs> and yeah. I was like, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It, unfortunately, that's well, I, it's a reference, uh, so I won't claim it. It's a reference to Theodore Adorno. There's a famous quotation which precedes the there is no ethical action under capitalism or something like this, which people too frequently use as an excuse to do whatever they like. But it's there is no right way to live in the wrong world. That's right. that that's another one that's constantly there with me. But perhaps that's a really nice quotation for trying one more time to, to articulate what I mean, which is to say that there's no right way to live in the wrong world. Perhaps the most critical, that you could not be more critical of morality, I think, than say something like that, right? But to assert it requires the image of a wrong world, which necessitates thinking through a world that would be right. So even this most negative thought necessitates the apparition of an image of what would be good, right? But the recognition that is merely an apparition and can only be an apparition under the wrong world, that's the critical moment. And that's, for me, the insight of Marxism, the insight of critical theory. And I think increasingly, I think the insight proper to utopia itself. That's So perhaps that's in terms of negative thought, that's 
for me encapsulates it the best, uh, at least the way that I perhaps naively am approaching it. At least in the US where I live and therefore I'm most familiar with this place, the political discourse is so Manichaean, the good and the bad, that you can see that other leaders that were honest and were more sophisticated or whatever, were more honest, I think, didn't present it that way. I think of this speech I heard by Fidel Castro talking about Israel and Palestine within Israel, saying, let's get it established. There are no good guys. We can look at both sides here and make a decision. This is what's what I see happening, which is the kind of statement that an American politician would make, that you don't have to have a hero to take a stand, is what he was saying. And he takes a stand on the side of the Palestinians as occupied, not because they treat women well, since they don't. And Marxists, they're not. But on the other hand, apartheid, you can take a stand against apartheid and against any system that imposes that on another country. That that kind of thinking, that kind of thoughtfulness is not part of our political discourse. And it's not part of our intellectual world at the university either. Is it in England? It depends where you are. I wouldn't be able to make any kind of big comment on it. UK philosophy is absolutely with her, without hope, in my view. In a sense, there's a real sense in which, I mentioned this in another interview before, that there is a sense in which uh, British transphobia, which has to an extent been exported around the world, is a specifically philosophical uh, contribution, right? If, if, there, if, if UK philosophy has produced one political contribution probably in the last 50 years, it's been the, the mode that transphobia has taken which is why Kathleen Stock and Jane Claire Jones and all of these people are the people who've been in the ascendancy with regards to transphobia. But that's by the by. With regards to thoughtfulness, there's a sense in which the end of the book is really trying to discover a kind of a value of universal resistance, an ethics of universal resistance that tries to an extent be rather uncompromising about what is right. And I find it really difficult to not be uncompromising about what is right. I'm. This is such an attempt to be the, the person who cares about morality and accept um, all those kind of standards. And to an extent, kind of the Nietzschean, by which I mean in its French reception, critiques of morality as a limiting and totalizing, problematically totalizing force. Because I want to be uncompromising about the universal liberation of all peoples. Um, I find it that, that any attempt to step back from that usually ends up in not just something which I think is particularly problematic. I want to go for something stronger, but I'll leave it there. But also, I think you end up in a, some real philosophical dead ends. So remember, I, I suppose that thought remaining at extremes, that's an echo of Benjamin. So there's no ambivalence here, I think. I want to cling to utopia and, and continue to do all that I can to articulate that this world is not the right one. We must do absolutely everything within our power to, to escape it in thought and in action. But, but that requires... I think, thinking through the extreme determination of our lives and of our brains to an extent that that accompanies a world that is so thoroughgoingly destructive. And to an extent, philosophy and utopian philosophy, I think, is the way out, if there is one. Yeah. And on a you know, more serious note, I would love to get your take on the Barbie movie. Because oh there's goodness. a bit there's a bit in your book. <laughs> where you talk about the person who becomes a commodity, right? The slave. And 
my reading of the Barbie movie was that it was the opposite, right? The commodity is given consciousness, you know, it's sort of Pinocchio kind of thing. Yeah, um, I'm a real girl. Yeah, exactly. And the amount of female friends that I've spoken to who who loved it, particularly that bit at the end, like it is a very funny movie. It is a it is an enjoyable ride. But the bit towards the end, spoilers, whereas it's this kind of thing of we're all Barbie. That's the kind of montage video bit that kind of happens. I was just like, ah, fuck you. I'm not Barbie. I don't care about Mattel. This has been a fun movie, but like you want me to now resonate with this commodity. Uh, I just, yeah, in the spirit uh, of philosophical meandering. Resonate with the, the transformation is what they want you to do. Right. Not with the commodity, but the transformation of the commodity into a real girl person. I, I must confess, I haven't seen the Barbie movie. God but damn I, it. I might, but for a while, I was in one of these sort of slightly more silly moods that I had. I wanted to write a basically unserious piece about how Bar- Barbie and Oppenheimer represent the twin poles of modern fascism. Right. Uh, I don't know whether that was true, but it was just would have been funny to write and see what comes out at the end. But I, insofar as that, insofar as, uh, as a cultural object, I think it's quite interesting but I'm not sure it's interesting for utopian reasons because it's critique. There's something to be said of its similarity to allegories, which attempt to say that oh, we're all really like this kind of inanimate world. Mm. Funnily enough, it's Klosowski's living currency has popped into my head as this famous right attempt to articulate like the an economy of desire. Right? I don't know if that would have anything to do with it, but I suppose it would, in a sense, be quite the opposite of what I'm trying to articulate here insofar as it attempts to depict right the image of the other kind of completed final resistance right so that it is too close i think probably to a specific uh, attempt to critique the world via a depiction of an image that would be better i don't give, deliberately don't give too many examples of utopian narratives because i'm not so sure about the use of examples in general but the very few examples that i try to give are rather a rather vague and the, some of the best ones I've come across are in, in terms of music. So ones of the image of an, of an apparition of autonomy, if you don't mind me, there's this recording of Donny Hathaway singing You've Got a Friend live at the Troubadour in Los Angeles, I think. It might be at the bitter end. It's on an album. And it's about a year after Carole King's record, recorded it. It's not a particularly well-known song at the time, but a few people know it. And... He starts singing it. The crowd understands what song it is in about three chords. And then spontaneously, the whole crowd leaps into gospel harmony, right? And, and Donny Hathaway stops singing the chorus because the crowd are doing it and he just had libs over the top. Now, what that looks like is an act of complete spontaneity, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the, the apparition of almost complete freedom, right? Uh, but of course, it's not. And you've got to think about why did all those people know that well know how to do those harmonies well it's because when they went to church every sunday for the last 25 years of their lives right and similarly and there'll be a number of other processes which are which lead towards that but there's this kind of apparition of something truly free there that but you only really understand it's i think appearance of autonomy as almost as a collectively produced artwork through understanding how uh, particular conditions have given rise to the appearance of that particular form of autonomy. And it's not just one of my favorite songs, but I think it's, in a sense, an image of the way that if I was to try and think through political action in from on the basis of this book, that would be one of them. So rather than saying, hey, we've depicted society in this rather positive way, rather it would be the appearance of an apparently negative action, of an apparently positive thing, which the moment you start thinking about it, you realize actually 
it, it can be thought to be rather critical of of a number of things. You talk about artwork in the book, a thing that negates the world of things. It's fascinating because I was wondering what separates as some sort of maybe political thing versus a leisure activity. Because I was thinking you also talk about you mentioned maybe at the beginning of the podcast this idea that there's this popular idea of escape that happens a lot of the time maybe in leftist academia, like ideas of escaping something. But then there's this mention of Saturday night dances, right? The idea that this was during some period of slavery, this was a sort of let off steam mm -hmm. event, right? But the whole thing is still overseen by the sort of master and slave stuff. I'm just wondering what, what counts... It? Is artwork that's sort of radical versus sort of a leisure activity that might be contained, as it were, because presumably you can get art or you can get music that, like, I'm thinking of Rage Against the Machine, right? Like, they, on one hand, they're pointing in a direction, they're being critical, but on the other hand, they exist inside a system that's there to generate profit. And then there's all that funny stuff where lots of right-wing politicians were disgusted when they found out what machine they were raging against. Yes. And that's a, that's a really fantastic question. So I suppose the way that I'll answer it is this. So Rage Against the Machine are probably exactly the example of what I don't think would be, would be radical art. Now, that's not because I think that they adopt a reactionary position or anything like that. They, perhaps they don't. But in terms of the artwork itself, because I'm not certain that as an artwork, so radical art, perhaps, and to an extent, I think good art, is that which in the production of itself as an art object, comprehends its own production within a capitalist totality. So the best example that I give, and it's one that I frequently give, is the music of Sophie, which some people, you may or may not know, she was this transcendently good producer and DJ. And her work is often, I think, to a degree fetishized for its apparent futurity by virtue of the fact that it will use a lot of futuristic sounding synths. But the real genius of it, I think, is that it makes you rethink in the sense that, and it makes you rethink pop in the way that it is presented, for example, in queer spaces. Hit Me Baby One More Time means a very different thing in queer clubs uh, as it does in other nightclubs. And she is one who, is, who was able to actually present the creation of those naive pop melodies as queer within their context of these huge futuristic you know, synthesizer sounds. So insofar as any art can be utopian, it would be thinking through the fact that its escape by its escape of the world would indeed be impossible. It would indeed be impossible. So it's because artworks are things, they are tradable. They're, if you think about fine art, fine visual art, it's extremely expensive. These are investments for the richest people in the world. And yet there's this weird sense in which they're also useless. Uh, they have no value, use value in the Marxist sense. This is Adorno's famous analysis of in aesthetic theory. And so it's a thing which negates the idea that everything could be reduced to value. Because of course, what you mean? What do you mean that Salvatore Mundi's however many million pounds? That doesn't, I don't even know what that, the more you think about it, the stranger it gets. And so I, I really think that artworks, perhaps any, the radicality of any artwork would not be its intention, but the, the way that it might reflect the particular moment of the form of art at a given historical moment. And indeed, artworks which profess their own political intentions tend to me to obscure the way that they are part of what they are criticizing and, 
and so become right. that degree ideological rather than genuinely radical. I hope that makes a little bit of sense. That that's my sort of idiosyncratically negative position. Yeah, that there's a kind of power in maybe holding your cards close to your chest as an artist, opposed to saying like, my artwork is about this <laughs> and you must interpret it this way. And yeah, no, that, that, that does make sense. You speak in the book uh, about narrative. You touched on it a bit earlier. Could you explain what you mean by that? I draw heavily on the work of Paul Ricoeur, who understands narrative in a way that I think is basically very convincing, which is that it is mimesis, which is to say, in a sense, the mimicking, the imitation of human action. So when you watch a film, it's as if that happened, right? That's mm. how it works. And it works on three levels, which I think perhaps are best explained in the book. So I won't go into them here. But what it all has to do with how it figures, how it produces a figure of human action in something that kind of looks like a plot. This is what Ricoeur calls implotment. Mm -hmm. And the reason I use the idea of narrative is to try and avoid what I call a speculative aporia or a set of speculative aporias in the idea of in the philosophy of utopia, which find it locked basically in this position between trying to escape actuality and being fully a part of it as well. Now, I don't think that we can really do such a thing with narrative. It's not like stories are going to provide us this great escape from everything that is, not at all, but rather that narrative might be able to, to give a kind of poetic response to that situation that we're in, which might affect in the specific term, it's refigure, but affect human action such that liberatory politics becomes more possible within our actuality, which we have not seen, we have not succeeded in escaping, but rather that liberation becomes part of that actuality. And so what I do in with narrative is initially do that. And then in the second chapter, I try to connect to the idea of utopian memory or the idea of kind of radical memory. Again, that got really popular in the late noughties, early 2010s with these ideas of lost futures and hauntology and all this, which got quite popular on the blogosphere. Mm. And in that, I try to draw on the idea of tradition, specifically the tradition of the oppressed uh, as a way, as a kind of mode of utopian narrative, or perhaps even the mode of utopian narrative. That is to say altogether that just as any reading a narrative or being told a historical narrative at school uh, or watching a film might refigure the way that you think about the world. So I think utopian narrative can do so in specific ways. So really, utopian narrative is the key concept of the whole book. None of what I'm saying, I think, to me, makes much sense without it. And so that's why Paul Ricoeur is, is so important, um, uh, for me at least. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, and you talk about utopia's contradictions, granted its political force. Now, contradictions obviously is the sort of big, important word within sort of Marxist stuff. And I'm not the expert, you, know, you and Harriet are. 
But I'm just wondering, maybe as a sort of uh, brief side routing from the conversation, as far as I understand it, a simple understanding of this idea of contradictions is just that eventually capitalism collapses under the, its own weight of contradictions, right? If utopia's contradictions grant it its political force, then so does capitalism's contradictions, right? Is that the sort of gotcha that it appears to be within sort of Marxist stuff? Like, haha, capitalism's full of contradictions. Yeah, so's everything. Exactly. So the gotcha, right? What do you think you've got is, well, look, I've shown it to be false. And I'm now going to give you the true answer, which is my articulation <laughs> of communism. Right, or something like that, right? But then they forget that their articulation of communism is part of capitalism because they are, they are too, and it, it isn't a gotcha. Now, what it might do is that uh, it might be a critique of ideology. So ideologies tend to present themselves as non-contradictory systems. For example, I think liberalism, for that reason, is the archetypal ideology because it tries to articulate a vision of a non-contradictory world, which is absolutely chock full of these contradictions between the public and the private, the contradictions between citizen and the subject, uh, and so on and so forth. Universal democracy and borders, right, is another one. So I. So non-ideological thought would be one that professes its own contradictory status, I think. Mm. And really briefly, I think contradiction is obviously has that specific Marxist meaning. But for me, it, contradiction is a particular point in the development of negations. So there's, no, there's a number of them. There's other things like mediation. There's an initial negation. There's failure. But in the development of a particular negation where two poles appear, such that one, two things are oppositional to one another. For example, in a class, uh, in a class conflict between workers and capital, for example, that might be in a position. But of course, all of that is internal to capitalism as a particular negation, right? So the appearance of the worker as a contradiction to really the owner is a particular stage in that development. It isn't, I think, probably the sole contradiction, although it might be the point where a lot of the conflict in that contradiction is actually played out. And the reason why I think that utopia gets its force from its contradictory status is because the necessity of utopia, as by the end resistance, tells us that this world is uncontradictory. So it functions as ideology critique. There's a sense there, which is that the fact that we can't imagine the right world perhaps tells us that we live in the wrong one. That would that maybe something like that would would articulate what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, this idea we live in the false, falsehood is all there is. I think it's one of the kind of final lines maybe in the book. And it's yeah, interesting because the previous conversation we had around pessimism and utopia, that this idea that the kind of the world that we live in, the real world, is ultimately the sort of playground of capitalists, right? It's their sort of fantasy land that we live in, but then we call it reality, which I guess is why there's all this talk of escape. And we want to escape into a, a world where uh, we're in control opposed to being controlled. And I'm interested in this idea of, there's a couple of things. One is that you mentioned utopia has a debt to the past. And I wondered maybe if we can explore that a bit. And that, that you also have this other great quote, not all people exist in the same now. I wondered if yeah. those two things are connected or if you wanted to talk about them a bit. They are connected, but I will talk about them in sequence and perhaps but my, by my putting them next to one another, they'll appear to be connected. <laughs> so I, so first of all, this idea that we have a debt to the past. So this is my attempt to think through 
where on earth the goodness of utopia is supposed to derived from. So I've said that utopian, the only way to think about utopia is narrative, which when I began to think that, I thought, hang on, narrative in my head is either really historical or fictional. There can be some mediation between those two, but so in historical ones, they have to tell it basically like it is, right? That's what hist- the basic debt of the historian, right? Is to say, I need to actually work out what has really happened here. Of course, there's an element of presentation. It's mediated by fictional modes, but that's the basic debt. And then fictional narrative. So that wouldn't be ethics, right? That's epistemology, historiography. And then fiction, that doesn't have, it doesn't have to be morally right to be a beautiful poem, right? I think to speak of the morality of what Shakespeare's sonnets would miss the point. Although it might reflect a certain morality, I don't think that's the standard, primary standard of evaluation. I wanted to try and work out how utopian narrative could have any connection to morality. And the way that I do that is through this kind of moral economy of debt and promise that we have that the tradition of the oppressed names. This, in the struggle against oppression, the struggle against oppression promises a liberated future. Insofar as that's what you're struggling for, but the kind of uh, the critical, uh, the negative moment is to work out it hasn't worked yet. Uh, we're not there, uh, and those, to an extent, therefore, that promise has been broken. But we are the people who have broken that promise. We are the future that that was promised to the past, or right, or our own liberation was what was promised to the past. And so the knowledge or the recognition, the articulation of those struggles as and those failed promises leads us to have this debt to actually fulfill that, to fulfill that promise of liberation that was made to the past. And indeed, therefore, we are operating not for our not in the image of our liberated grandchildren, but in the image of oppressed ancestors. That's the mm-hmm. Benjaminian line. Mm-hmm. And it's the one that I think is proper to thinking about utopia. Now, regarding the question of whether we all live in the same now, I believe that's actually a, a quotation from, from Bloch, who's another one of the figures in this book, in his book, Heritage of Our Times, which was a response to the success of fascism in Germany. And in that, he tries to adjust the standard Marxist analysis of non-linear temporality That is to say that not everyone is at the same stage of capitalist development within Mm. countries, between countries, and so on and so forth, which leads to the present being rather different in various places. And that's the way, and there are certain things will survive from previous now outmoded modes of production and so on and so forth. And those can be drawn upon for thinking through liberation. The issue is with blocks, I, I think, there's a lot that's right about what Bloch writes, but that's not one of his better ideas, I think, because I think that tends to presume that we can just stand outside of history and choose what we draw upon, which is actually an unusually uncritical position for Ernst Bloch to adopt. But I, I think that is basically a Leninist position that he adopts, and I, I don't think it's one that works. However, there is a sense in which one of the things that I wrote shortly before this was something on Marx's 18th Brumaire of Louis, Louis Bonaparte, <clears throat> which is like my favorite piece of writing ever. And in, that's all about the fact that time is out of joint, right? Mm. In, the ha- in Shakespeare's term that Derrida was so fond of. And there would be an ase- a sense of the appearance of the future in the past, which might suggest that there is some kind of asynchronicity here. But the kind of attempt to think through various temporalities all existing at one point in history, I, I end up moving beyond as a way of thinking about utopia, or at least trying to. 
for the reason that I, I don't think it ends up being quite adequate to responding to that specific moral dilemma, which ultimately leads me to debt. Because so I suppose the reflection of our non-same timeliness in block, right? The fact that not everyone is living in the same now. You can't stand outside of that contradiction and draw upon one each one another one or the other. Rather, utopian narrative would be the one that stands firmly within that contradiction and tries to and tries to articulate the broken promises of the past and and articulates a narrative on that basis. Underneath all of this is the urge to act to change the world that you see knowing what you see has its contradictions. And it's so important to think about this because it's humbling and people have to be humbled before they make declarations. And it also strikes me so much as the, maybe because of my client base, it's like an adolescent that has to negate her parents because she's totally their child and yet is independent and dependent simultaneously. But anyway, this has been wonderful. I have a two o'clock emergency client, so I'm going to have to get off about one second of two. <laughs> okay, yeah, no worries. Hey. If you have to disappear, that's all good. Just equally, did you have any sort of final thoughts or reflections? One of the things that struck me about listening to the explanations, the discussion of utopia in the West reminds me of a lot of discussion of like nirvana in Buddhism. Right. And listening to like different approaches of philosophy in that sector, there's a whole thing about Buddhist thought of contradictions. And a lot of it was just a, a striking reminder of some real similarities and some real differences on those different basis of the philosophy between the East and the West. It's not necessarily understanding or comprehending. I think it's really important. Because it's... Uh, it, it, it illustrate something new to you to some degree, right? Yeah. And I think one of the things that is important about a lot of philosophy and a lot of that, what the heck is going on here, is also just so many reminders of so many other things in life. And it's one of the that that area of what is this and thinking about what things are is what allows us to like expand our possibilities. Because those are the times when you make connections or you break connections of, of things that you never would have if you would have stayed comfortable. Nice. Yeah. And in a sense, I am going to be the last person to say that I understand this book. But so much about like Western and modern understanding is almost a regurgitation. These are facts that you're able to recite them. Yeah. <laughs> there is only one correct answer. Right. And thinking in a lot of ways, at least in the colloquial sense of what understanding is, right? Ultimately, my take of the book is that this is, and what is utopia is about like expanding the possibilities beyond what you could think and what you were capable of thinking before. That's probably just about right. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I don't know if you've got a few extra minutes, but I oh, thought- Oh yeah, got... I'm here. Awesome. Yeah. Earlier on, I was fascinated to find out more. I didn't want to interrupt the flow of what was going on because you were talking yeah. about the British exporting a certain kind <laughs> of transphobia. And I'd love to know a bit more about that. Yeah, I need to. So I'm, I think I'm probably going to end up writing something about it, but because I, I, I think that's the only way I'm going to be able to think through it. But there's, 
the specific mode of philosophical argumentation that you get in UK philosophy. You get it in American analytic philosophy as well, but actually I think you get it even more in UK philosophy, is the demand to reduce the world to simplicity, to reduce the world to an analytic definition. So the the grand philosophical failure of analytic philosophy was the fact that you couldn't analyze knowledge as justified true belief in a way that would be free of counterexamples. If you've ever been had the misfortune of studying philosophy as an undergraduate in the UK, that's what you spend the first three weeks doing, is this right. the story of this failure, basically. And there's a real sense in which the woman is an adult human female retort, which is the one that's become popularized with Posey Parker and all these other kind of mm-hmm. neo-fascists, is a kind of appealing to that <clears throat> propensity in thought towards reduction, to the reduction of concepts to their constituent parts. And that kind of, and it's, a, it's accompanied by sneering hatred for anyone who's trying to actually think about anything. The idea that it would be that, some, that something might be more complicated than what can be expressed in terms of formal logic, that there might be any kind of contradiction in our world that couldn't just be thought out if we just use the right words, is, I think, what leads towards these kind of the appealing the appeal of these kind of specific mobilizations of transphobia as mis- as and where where transness is rests on a mistake so previously and in american transphobia you get this more where being trans is evil it's morally repugnant right there's some that you've done something morally incorrect that's either decadent or whatever that's not what these people are saying that what they're saying is that it's wrong that it's stupid right it's like what you idiot, I can't believe you think a man could be a woman, right? That's the specific, I'm sorry for any trans people listening, love you lots. But the idea that transness rests on a specifically epistemological error, and that's what's so wrong about it, I think is part right. of is part of what I think is distinctively philosophical about British transphobia, if that makes any sense at all. So it's not that kind of religious, so that's why it's different to homophobia, right? Of course, it's militated by the same people for similar reasons but the specific homophobia was always that this is a kind of wrong way of living but there wasn't any kind of sense in which it was a mistake that you weren't i i it wasn't so much part of the discourse that you just weren't attracted to the people that you were attracted to you'd either chosen the wrong option right so they'd say something like it was a choice you weren't born like this right Uh, or without the but i i don't think that there was I would need to think about this is why I need to think about it right before I say anything. But there wasn't so much of an idea that it was you were actually just lying to yourself, or that you were that you were you had made a mistake. And interestingly, this isn't just analytic philosophy um, that does this. I think Lacanians do this as well. If for what it's worth, I don't know whether how much you guys have, um, but that's why I think Zizek and Jacqueline Muller and these kind of famous. Lacanians and Elizabeth Rudinesco as well as so often have all basically written stuff recently, which has been, to my mind, almost awfully transphobic. I mean, Jacqueline Miller extremely, but because they believe that you've mistaken a, a merely symbolic relationship to a biological one. I think, why would you want to change anything about your body? Because sexuation is purely symbolic. So, you know, so it, it's taking over a little bit into continental philosophy as well, but that kind of sneering hatred for, for complication, for contradiction that is so much a part of UK philosophy is the specific mode of rejection that uh, accompanies British transphobia, which I think is being exported as the primary discourse of transphobia around the world. That's the way I'm thinking through it at the moment. 
Yeah, wow. Equally, sorry, did you want to respond? Oh, no, that this brought up again. I'm sorry, because the thinking, I'm actually not like a serious, I'm not a very orthodox Buddhist person that meditates constantly and lives a holy lifestyle in any way, shape, sense, or form. But now, just listening to what you said just reminds me of the Buddhist paradox, which is basically that a common misbelief is that everything we have and we come in contact with has an intrinsic essence or inherent nature. And the actual fact is that we are a combination of influences of cause and conditions, that the ignorance of assuming this intrinsic essence or quality is one of the root causes of all the suffering in the world. Interesting. There's a lot of the, that wanting that simplicity always does remind me of like this thing of the intrinsic essence or inherent nature argument. Right. Yeah. And the hatred for complication or the need to reduce everything. I assume it comes from, it's just expedient thinking. It's just, oh, this is too complicated. I need to reduce it to something really simple. And maybe that has some sort, you could see the kind of Darwinian thing of it's a survival mechanism. And then it just spills out into how we get along or not get along. But I think if you think that you've simplified it, because you thought, okay, I'm just going to think about it this way for now. That's okay. I, mm. I think I'll probably do that all the time, right? I think we all do. But the point would be that the resistance to the idea that things could be more complicated than that or that there would be ever, I mean, that's in a sense what I'm trying to say in what I say in the first, the introduction to the, oh no, the foreword to the book, is this idea that everything must be immediately comprehensible. Mm. And you get told this. I remember the refrain at my undergraduate university was that if your writing doesn't make sense to someone who's never read any word of philosophy before, then it's not good writing. And I can see that there's a certain kind of, you know, you don't, you just don't want to be an obscurantist about it. But the idea that, who do you mean by anyone? The classic example that Judith Butler always gives is that queer people read Gender Trouble and go, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> uh, and, and you just get it. And they're talking about Althusser here, there, and everywhere, and you know, Foucault, Lacan, all these people. But we know that doesn't matter. That's not the point. And the person who tries to just understand every word is, is missing the point. Adorno has a really nice uh, essay about this, which I really think everyone should read, everyone who tries to think philosophically should read, which is called How to Read Hegel. You know, it's the third of his Hegel studies. And I, I know- Oh, I'm that's not... actually on, on my list. So oh, I, is it? I, uh, it's, I have it's, a second yeah, voice. Really good. It's really good. It's it's incredibly difficult, obviously, because it's a doorno, but, but, but I suppose that's why it's good in my view. Yes, I've, I would need to, I, I have a lot more that I want to say, but I think I might refrain from saying it until I, I'm a little bit surer of myself in- sure. In, in how it comes about, but really brief, lastly, it's what I have in my head is the, uh, the critique of immediacy that you get at the beginning of the phenomenology of spirit, Hegel's phenomenology of spirit, where, you know, even the most basic this here, just this, right, breaks mm -hmm. down and it shows itself to actually already be mediated by much more. And indeed, that much more is really language. It's one of the things that when Lacan takes it up, he's less wrong than he usually is. But and that the rejection of mediation is part of the rejection of negation. It all really comes from, funnily enough, a set of debates in the kind of early 20th century amongst between kind of what eventually became the ascendant philosophy of the UK Academy and what was previously a vaguely Hegelian version of idealism, British idealism. 
and the kind of rejection of that was actually made, I think, primarily on moral grounds, <laughs> although surreptitiously so. It's like, well, this is just ridiculous. Why would you talk like this? Rather than, I think, often it's not quite as, as philosophically sound in its foundations as I think it's assumed to be. You, you always just get told that it would almost be just morally wrong, uncouth almost, to write in such an obscurantist fashion. And, and I, that there's where that morality comes from, I don't know, it's probably a really interesting thought, but there is something specifically English about it, I think. The demand to, to return to the basics. It's interesting though, because I've definitely felt, and you've given me pause for thought here, so maybe this is philosophy done well, because I, I have definitely felt in the past in reading either academic work or books that are very much aligned with kind of what I would call academic language, Mm-hmm. that I have felt like personally slighted in reading some oh. stuff where I just feel like this is deliberately obtuse. Worst reading of it is because I'm a snob, right? Which is that this person has used language that's very difficult to comprehend precisely because the academy, the world that they swim in, requires this language for them to do their job, right? And yeah. so then it becomes a sort of social clothing that they put on and they go, hey, look at me using all these fabulous words. And yes. That's great, but I don't understand it. And then I feel like, fuck you. And the right thing, so. yeah. And so that, and so I'm aware that's sort of an inverse class snobbery to some degree because it's, or is it inverse? I don't know. But the point being that I have just in the past felt annoyed when I come across something that I can't comprehend. And so I yeah. found reading your book to be fascinating because straight <laughs> out the gate, you're saying like, deal with it. Come on, engage with this yeah. thing. And yeah. I was like, well, okay, this is, this is different. And in the conversation we're having now, I will definitely have to think about this a bit more because it's compelling and convincing. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah I hope so. I, don't, I, I, would, I completely agree that the use of technical language is often basically a barrier to entry to engagement with this specific discourses. I think economics as a discipline is perhaps, is perhaps the prime example of that. You get, I remember reading economics papers which cashed out Broadly speaking, these were these incredible findings, right? Worthy of Nobel Prizes in some cases, which is if you put stuff so that people can get it more easily, they're more likely to want it. And this requires a great deal of funding to discover. I'm reluctant or I've been vaccinated against economics. So I I suppose all I would want to say is it all comes from this idea that I'm the demand that stuff should be understood as its primary mode is the demand that philosophy is returned to life. And that's an impulse that I tend to at least resist a little bit because where I, it's perhaps a thought for another time, but philosophy is really instrumental in my personal life insofar as it makes me no longer the person that I was. And I think we'd be rather dissatisfied if we read everything and we didn't change at all. And thinking through how that change occurs, (laughs) it, it might involve not really understanding it at all and perhaps having some operation that you don't understand or returning to it and understanding it differently a second time. Why would anyone reread it if you got it on the first go? Reread anything, right? right? It's almost very trivial. <laughs> but so the I and, and you'll even you'll get philosophers who think that you can who will say that you can write it this way that's completely comprehensible. But they will write in the most obscurantist fashion imaginable. But to them this is the image of what is comprehensible. Right. And so what is comprehensible, what is incomprehensible is absolutely a political distinction. Right. And it, it, it tracks power dynamics for sure. Mm. I don't want to call out 
other philosophers because everyone works really hard. But I will perhaps send one your way as the example of this is like the hardest thing I've ever had to read. I remember having to read it. But this was written by someone who who would indict other philosophers for being too unclear. Wow. Or swathes of philosophy for being too ridiculous and, and pretentious. And I think about it and think, actually, no, this is the most difficult. Yeah, so unbelievably difficult thing. And also a transphobe, this said, right? So, Amazing. Uh, what a combination. Yeah, exactly. And it so frequently happens. Huh? Uh, so there's, yeah, I want to think about it a lot more. But And so the other thing that's helpful to read on this subject is Judith Butler's preface to the second edition of Gender Trouble which they wrote in response to a famous critique of that book by Martha Nussbaum. That article was called The Professor of Parody. I think it was in like The New Yorker, in which Martha Nussbaum says, Judith Butler is this ridiculous writer. No one should ever read them for this reason. And Judith Butler slightly, very slyly and I think effectively responds to that criticism in, in the second preface, talking about their writing style and saying, understandable to whom, basically. It's the kind of beginning, is the beginning, because they say, I've spoken to a lot of people who've understood every word that I've said. Sorry, Martha, kind of a little bit. And what might that say? And often I will read things and think, I don't understand this. And why is that? Uh, and that might re- make me reflect on what I, how I think. You can read stuff from people with different experiences to you and think, oh, I have no idea what that's like. And that would be the powerful thing, huh? not the fact that they've managed to make it understandable to you. Yeah. yeah. Then it raises the question of why, I guess, why do I or why does anyone have resistance to certain material? written or otherwise like an obvious one is i don't know some video on youtube will turn up with ben shapiro debating someone and i'm just like oh, i can't be fucked to watch this fuck this dude but it's like what does that mean does that mean like i'm resisting something that might be uh, revealing that might teach me something but then on the other hand i'm like I don't want to waste my time. I think there's a difference between looking at someone that you're you are fairly familiar with their work. Right. <laughs> right. And being like, I'm not interested in this work and trying to engage with a work that you're have you're struggling to wrap yourself around. What I might say, Liam, is as well is that I, I don't see why you're being pissed off is an illegitimate or a failed response to philosophy. I read, I spend my life reading stuff that pisses me off. That's what I think. I think that's what being, doing philosophy is. It's just reading something and going, this is, this is ridiculous. And so perhaps even the idea that I, that the goal of philosophy should be written to a lot of the greatest works of philosophy you can imagine were written to universal disdain. Right. Um, right. Well, and, yeah, it was patrolling in those days. A little right, bit. exactly. And I suppose if there is that, that disdain, it's that feeling that if this hasn't been made comprehensible to me, then perhaps it's failed. But you could read something against how the writer wants you to. So you can read something and from the point of view of trying to work out what assumptions it imports about the way the world is, that... Yeah, that I think what ideology critique would be is taking an example of some and actually reading it rather against the author's intentions. And that's, again, and there's a part of this comprehensibility, which is that I don't necessarily want to understand what the writer meant, right? It would be something more like understanding this as an object. Why is this being created? Under what conditions has this been created? Mm-hmm. Um, and what might that say about the production of thought under capitalism or something like that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, the idea that philosophers could be professional trolls is... Oh, well, one mean, that tickles me. I think Slavoj Zizek's made a career on it, but I, <laughs> yeah, perhaps that's unfair. But I certainly, certain philosophers have definitely written stuff. Marx all the time, right? Mm. What's the German ideology, if not a eight hundred page attempt to troll Max Stirner? <laughs> but is uh, it? Yeah, 
No, it's that's all really good points. And I, yeah, I guess when you point certain things out, it annoys people. I just, I'm going to reiterate the Barbie thing. Like I, again, a couple of female friends really enjoyed the movie. And I was like, it only cares about a certain class of women, right? I've like, been told in no uncertain times to never watch it. You should, it's really <laughs> funny. It, it is funny. But here's the thing, right? Like it doesn't include any, like it points at all these oppressive things, which is fine. And it, it's done in a sort of funny way. But it doesn't talk about whoever made the Barbie dolls to begin with, right? The people in the factory, presumably predominantly Asian women at a guess, because the production would have been overseas. So it's like that 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 class of women doesn't give a fuck about. But like the girl boss, it's yeah, you go yeah, girl. It's all, it's all like workplace feminism, right? It's like the oppression yeah. of women is functioned right. by the fact that they can't take play, take part in wage labor. Yeah, right? mm. which I, I you would have thought yeah. we'd have moved beyond in the 1970s with black feminism, but apparently not. Yeah, but I guess the reason I'm telling this story is it yeah. didn't go down well. I know, it was I not really, received I really when I said it. I told that it would upset me for weeks if I watched <laughs> it. Uh, and, he, and that's probably right, because things often do. I, a friend of mine described the movie as young Hillary as a doll. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and that would have made like, a great stuff. campaign material. Young Hillary, yeah. That yeah. sounds about right. But again, I won't watch it because I've, I've been told. But I haven't watched it. Destructive but, but hang on, both of you here are being resistant to material. You should be diving headfirst into this uh, mass media trolling Perhaps exercise. I should. Perhaps yes. I should. Um, but it's, it's <laughs> self-preservation more than anything else. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Okay, I guess we should uh, wrap it up there. Yeah, thank you so much for your book and engaging with my rambling. I absolutely oh, appreciate. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Yeah, thank yeah. you guys for. I'm I'm glad that you seem to have enjoyed reading the book. It's really fun to be on. I had a great time. <laughs>